This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, ADAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen ADAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. ADAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. School suspensions featured in The Guardian. Always a provocative topic. According to analysis reported in the newspaper, since the pandemic, disadvantaged pupils in England were 3.7 times more likely to be sent home than other pupils. The analysis was published alongside a separate survey of teachers who said that verbal and physical abuse from pupils had increased significantly post-pandemic. School suspensions have risen overall since COVID, up 30% in 2021-22, compared with 2018-19, but have gone up more sharply amongst disadvantaged pupils up 75% versus 4% for non-disadvantaged. The analysis was completed by Who's Losing Learning on the latest available DfE figures for 2021 to 2022. Other groups who saw significant increases were children with social workers and children with special educational needs. The analysis also looked at geographical factors. The increase in suspensions was highest in the East Midlands, up 57%, followed by the northwest and northeast at 34%. The survey of NASUWT members found almost 9 out of 10 said the number of pupils exhibiting physically violent and abusive behaviours has increased in the last year. Almost three quarters of those surveyed cited poor socialisation skills following COVID restrictions as a key driving factor behind the rise in poor pupil behaviour. When asked for comment, the DfE said it supports head teachers to take the action necessary to promote good behaviour. The TES reports on further concerns around recruitment of secondary teachers in England. Figures obtained by the NEU and NAHT show ministers are on course to miss recruitment targets by 48%. Numbers in all subjects except history, PE and classics are below the national recruitment target. The figures for last month the final month before teacher training courses begin, shows there were 13,788 recruits. This is short of the target of 26,360. Paul Whiteman, NAHT General Secretary, said the shortages meant more children were being taught either by teachers with no qualifications in the subject, by teaching assistants or by supply staff. A DfE spokesperson said there were record numbers of teachers in schools, up by 27,000 since 2010. 
but unions point out that the number of pupils in state-funded schools had risen at almost double the rate of teaching workforce. Special educational needs has been in the spotlight after reports in the media suggest that the government has signed a contract targeting 20% cuts to the number of new education, health and care plans. According to The Observer, the cuts emerged as councils across England face huge financial deficits on SEND. This is caused by rising demand and long-standing underfunding, they say. Part of the government response has been the launch of the new Delivering Better Value in SEND, which supports councils to bring down budget deficits by early intervention and teaching children with SEND in mainstream schools. The plan's design costs £19.5 million, but it suggests a reduced growth in the number of EHCPs, targeting at least a 20% reduction. Concern has been expressed by SEND campaigners around the legality of such an approach. Ministers have denied that a specific target to reduce EHCP exists and that it was completely wrong to suggest the DfE is withdrawing support for SEND. Finally, a feature article in The Guardian focuses on research into the impact of pornography on the lives of children and young people. Abby Wright spoke to 10,000 children between 2016 and 2020. They were aged between 6 and 22 and came from a range of backgrounds across the UK. Wright is a theatre designer and did the research as part of the creation of two new musicals. The feature article called Too Much Too Young is available online, but broad findings suggest that children as young as six are encountering porn online often via pop-ups, but sometimes having been introduced to it by older friends or siblings. For 9- to 11-year-olds, exposure to porn is frequent via platforms like YouTube. Children as young as 12 admitted to feeling like they were addicted to pornography. Teenagers feel that they learn more from pornography than sex education classes, particularly those exploring their sexuality or gender identity. Pornography also appears to confuse the issue of consent, particularly for young women who feel if it is okay in porn, then it's okay in real life. Whatever our thoughts on such a sensitive and challenging topic, it seems clear that relationships and sex education needs to catch up quickly for a lot of young people. This has been your Teacher's Talk News with Joe Fox. Right, everyone. Good morning. Thank you for joining me today on the breakfast show. So we are going to be talking about HE and FE. So in particular, HE in FE and how serious are we about it? So I'd like to introduce our guest today, Emma Douglas, and she is currently the director of HE in an FE college. Perfect person to speak to us about this. So would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself, Emma, please? Yeah, good morning, everyone. As Sabrina said, my name's Emma Douglas. I am a director of HE, and probably from my accent, you can tell, up in the northeast of England. <laughs> um, I have worked in FA for 20 years, and very quickly, when I became part of kind of the FA family, I saw a, a opportunity, I suppose, to try and grow the HE provision, um, and that's what I've been very passionate about. So I've taught in many different um, kind of backgrounds. I've done A-level sociology. I have also taught access to HE and um, were 
part of a team who wrote and developed foundation degrees within the college as well. So lots and lots of um, different pies and with your fingers in them, yeah? Yep, definitely. <laughs> Brilliant. So HNSE, first of all, what is it and what are we banging on about in it? So first of all, I should have maybe said higher education in further education. That's yep. been better. Sorry about that, listeners. So could you explain to all our listeners out there, what does that actually mean? Yep. So what we're saying really is a over the last 20 years of my kind of career, we're seeing a number of learners who obviously come to further education colleges to do primarily level two or level three qualifications. And then I think historically, a lot of those learners were then moving into higher education institutions or what we would probably refer to as a university. And I think over the last 20 years, we've seen a shift really that further education colleges have been able to offer qualifications that match what the universities are doing in terms of level, not not always kind of the same subjects and, and skill sets, but have been able to offer the same level of qualification, but in that further education setting. And I think from my experience and where I'm from, um, that has allowed learners to continue to study in a surrounding that they maybe feel a little bit more comfortable with and a little bit more confident with and can kind of progress up to level four, level five, and then potentially up to level six, um, either in the college or to move and do a top up at a, at a university. So it's about kind of developing those skill sets from real low level up to kind of those higher levels, but within the same institution. Amazing. Right. So especially now, I think, you know, when we've got people with anxieties, maybe with definite income that can't go further afield or afford the university or, you know, the, the living abroad or living away from home. I think SE really has been uh, an opportunity for them to continue on in their education. So just absolutely backs out for the listeners there so so colleges currently as well as in 2022 colleges delivered 83 percent of all hncs so higher national certificates 58 percent of all higher national diplomas and then 63 percent of foundation degrees so really you know you're, you're really competing with some of these universities aren't you for this kind of stuff yeah absolutely and and like you see i think in the current climate you know students can't always afford to go to university they can't afford to kind of make that break away from working and, and going into something full-time and I think FA has managed to adapt and offer the opportunity in a variety of different ways so flexible learning um, evening classes whatever it may be to allow students who potentially wouldn't have thought about going into higher education they've given them the opportunity to be able to do that Brilliant. So I'm really interested to hear from some of the listeners about their experiences. If anyone out there has gone to HE in FB, please post something in the chat or send me a message and tell us about why you chose HE in FB. And for all of you guys, if you had the option to go to your local college and do your degree, would you do it? Because it says um, on some of the research that I've done that the colleges that offer higher education on average are only 15 miles away from the home, whereas universities tend to be on average 54 miles. 
And even if you were staying at home, the travel alone would probably be a massive cost to you, even if you weren't living away. And that's great. And I think, Emma, you mentioned there about the flexibility. And I think now more than ever, it's important for everyone to be flexible and, you know, doing blended learning, the hybrid. Definitely. My question to you is then, you know, over the pandemic, you know, when universities were going all uh, distance learning and they were going all low, Kenny Hill, loads of people complaining. They said this wasn't funny for money because they're not in the lecture halls, they're not in the seminars, and all these buildings. Do you have the same problem? Um, if if you as FE, uh, HE and FE are doing that, so we have moved to kind of a more blended learning approach. I think, in my experience we deal with obviously less students than potentially the EHE institution. So we can and have brought students back into the classroom, but we have opted to move to a, to a more blended approach. And I think one of the reasons is because EHE is really about developing those independent skills. And I think having that blended learning approach can really help with that. It's not about kind of the, the, um, the teacher knowing everything and spilling that over into the the students it's about the students finding things out themselves and I think that's allowed for that kind of flip learning approach a little bit more so I feel that um from the pandemic using uh, resources like teams and and other um kind of packages to support that learning process it's actually helped our HA learners a lot so you're obviously dealing with a a different target market I mean, is it very different? It is. So a lot of what kind of students are you getting into your HE courses? Yeah, so a lot of our learners are internal progressors who have come to the college and have potentially started on a level one or a level two program and feel comfortable and confident in staying. Um, obviously, a big push with HE is widening participation. And I think by allowing FE providers to run HA provision it's really ticking that box it's allowing um as I say students opportunities to succeed in things that they potentially wouldn't have had a an opportunity to do in the past we also find that a lot of our students work so again it's a more flexible approach and um, we we can have different start and end times of the day but equally different start and end times of the academic year, which again allows for that more flexible approach, allows students to maybe come out of um, employers and, and come on a day release kind of basis as well, especially with some of the HNC, HND programs too. So it, it does allow for that kind of, um, again, widening participation and, and those kind of access to higher ed that maybe people didn't always have. I would say that from my experience, one of the greatest things was, and I, me being one of them, I went and did my A-levels in my college and, you know, went through life and I came back and I did my PGCE, my teaching qual at in college when I did my A-levels. I didn't necessarily progress, but it was great to come back and see that transition, that difference. The same teachers, yep. but that growth that I'd gone through. Um, so then when I was... Um, my teacher training course when I was teaching on it and um, I saw my level one students go through get their degree within the university and then do their PGC 
um, within the university in FE. Yeah. It was brilliant. You really could see year on year the development and you think like these guys initially, you know, might have left school without GCSEs, might have had, you know, social anxiety, they might have had numerous issues and here they were graduating across the stage and you're handing them that certificate. It was really one of those magical moments that you think in your career, wow, this is this is why I'm in education. So um, I have to say, like when you do see that learner journey, and you see individuals or cohorts go through that, it's something magical that I don't think you get at a traditional university. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, it, it, I can think of two students where exactly the same kind of process, um, they came and I, I taught them at level two um, pre-access programs that I taught them on an access program. Then they developed into a foundation degree course that I taught on and then they came back and did the PGCE and then they came back to um, our college and actually taught and um, one of them is still here and really really doing well and really developing the program and it's it's really it's it's very proud I think to to kind of see the progress that that students made but then to see them now in a professional capacity really flourishing as well and really that that came from allowing that person to stay with us and progress at their own pace to some extent from FA into HA and it, it is it's it's lovely it's really really lovely so we're obviously um finding slightly different demographic and learners and it it shows in the kind of stats where you've got the majority of part-time learners at HE in FE are over the age of 25. Yeah. Whereas the full-time learners, 43% of them are under 21. So you've, you've got a, a slightly older demographic rather than ones that have just finished, say, A-levels and college and going straight into university. What difference does that have in terms of you know, curriculum planning and teaching and all of that? So you mentioned already you, to accommodate maybe an older demographic, you are flexible because you expect them to be working yeah families what else are you taking into account so again we know that adult learners come with pressures that you know other students don't have um like family commitments work um caring for others as well not not just children you know potentially caring for elderly people as well so therefore i think the wraparound that we provide with our ha programs is is really crucial and being an FA college, we have that wraparound support kind of embedded in what we do. Um, again, trying to kind of accommodate their work and pattern. So in, again, my experience, some adult learners are quite happy coming during the day when their children are at school and it's a bit of an escape for them. But other ways, some adult learners want to come on an evening. So again, it's having that flexible approach uh, in terms of that. Definitely during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, there's been times where we have switched to remote delivery to accommodate particularly our adult learners, um, especially kind of as we were coming out of the pandemic and we were still on local lockdowns or um, kind of self-isolation rules and restrictions. We would kind of have that dialogue with our adult learners to say, right, out of the 20 of you, 10 need to be at home. So why don't we just switch it to kind of that remote delivery? And I think that two-way dialogue with our adult learners, being HA learners, is is a really mature approach. 
and it helps them get the best out of it. I think they feel supported and I think that's really important. Teaching, teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, ADAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen ADAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. ADAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. I love, I love that kind of idea that, you know, you've got that dialogue. And I think, you know, I, I did go for university. I went through three different universities and um, I don't think that's always felt or experienced. You know, you, you're kind of a part of a mass sometimes. Yeah. Um, and then there's nothing against that. Some people love that, you know, love that buzz of being on that. But I, I like the idea of, you know, having that discussion and do you know what, we're going to change this to your individual needs for this week, this particular time. Um, so does this come at a cost? Does this come at a cost somewhere, whether it's in the quantity or whether it's in the operational budgets and things like that, thinking more of it, managing it kind of way? I, I do think that we see pressure on staff in terms of the, if especially when we have staff working on an FE and an HE basis, it can be um, taxing to some extent on their workloads because again at HA there's an expectation that colleagues will be ahead of the game so a lot more research you know they need to be very much where we are at FA you are given a curriculum you're given a specification you you have that to hand so staff have to go away and do that additional research um, and that can be you know a, a challenge I think for for staff and I think in terms of cost, that that is the cost really. It's around staff workload. It's about giving staff the time to do that research to, to others in terms of what they're doing to benefit our kind of HA learners. Um, and equally having kind of the, the budget, I suppose, to allow staff to develop their own skills to further HA provision. So, you know, allowing staff to get up to masters and doctorate level if that's what they so wish so that they can then pass that knowledge on to their HA learners. So in terms of say the, the staff, we'll move on to the staff now listeners. And I'd be really interested to hear if anyone out there is also teaching HNFE and what you're finding as a pressure in terms of your roles. Because essentially you're no longer a dual professional. You are, uh, you know, juggling a triad of roles, aren't you? Yeah. So, and, and each of those roles comes with its own expectations. How do you appraise or performance manage someone and what weighting do you give and, and what are the logistics uh, in those expectations? Are managers more flexible? Are they more aware? Do you get more CPD opportunities? Tell me more about that in terms of your staff and and your experience as, as a hatred lecturer method. So in in my experience, we 
need to give staff more time for preparation towards those HA delivery. And I don't think that always happens. Um, again, I think our HA staff do need to develop curriculum links. They need to kind of finalise detail of the curriculum. They need to produce assignments and um, kind of moderate and second marking and, and all of those things that sometimes are from an FA provision, it's not always there. Um, so CPD is really important. So one of the things that we are looking at moving forward is having specific staff development days for our teaching staff who teach on HA provision to try and just hone in on some of those skill sets that are important at HA. So I'm going to talk about one very harsh topic right now. So already we know in FE, the salary scales are nowhere to the schools and every other education sector. Um, but what happens to HG in FE, uh, FE? What happens to HE and FE lecturers who are called lecturers, but not necessarily paid the same as lecturers, say, in a university, but are having to compete with Bonte Park? I think I think that's the frustration. If I'm honest, I think you will find a lot of FE staff quite frustrated at that in terms of the time that they're allocated and obviously the salary that they receive. But I think there's a lot of, you know, to try and be really positive about it. I think on the flip side, the HA numbers that we have in, in FA, in my experience, are, are not to this kind of span that the HA institutions will have. So the staff are able to work with much more smaller numbers, which potentially, again, allows them a little bit of flexibility to hone in on some of those skill sets as well. So when you're talking about smaller numbers, what's an average class size, say, in a, in a HE course in your experience? So in my experience, we go with around 12 to 15. There's oh, pockets so where... It, a lot smaller. Yeah, there's pockets where it is bigger. Um, but I would say on average in our HE provision, Bogan, yeah, 12 to 15 being the, the kind of HE number. So say, say you've got a cohort. How many hours would lecturers see that cohort of 12 students in a week? So again, if it was a full-time um, provision, in my experience, we generally have around 10 hours allocated to that group. Um, at least one of those hours should be around tutorial and academic support. So it's nine-hour kind of contact. And that's all with one tutor or is that split? It can be split. It really depends upon the program. So again, um, what we find is we generally have two to three members of staff teaching across an HA program. I think from a quality point of view, I don't really think it's great quality to have the same member of staff teaching across the full program. I think students potentially will get sick of that staff member. Um, and I think staff, it just allows a little bit more flexibility. And what are you finding in terms of uptake to deliver HE? I mean, again, in my experience, it was it was seen as a privilege. It was like an honorary badge to wear when you were a HE lecturer in the college. So are you finding people are coming to you and say, do you know what, I really want to teach HE or are you having an advert out or what's the recruitment kind of process? 
I think people are really keen to get I think again like you said I think people see it as a real privilege I do and I have worked with some colleagues um recently and again in kind of where I'm from there's been a few staffing changes so we have asked some staff to step up into HA and there has been some staff that are a little bit apprehensive and a little bit nervous about it um just because it's out of their comfort zone but we're offering them CPD and, and working with kind of people within the college to to mentor them and to kind of upskill that. But I, I do think people see it very much as a privilege. And I think when people get into that HA delivery, and again, like you said earlier, that that kind of um, journey that the learner, the student makes, and we move towards that graduation at the end, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's really um, a privilege to kind of be part of that. Thank you. So I'm going to ask about next um, the kind of difference in teaching and learning and the hats and going back to that kind of swapping of roles. So what are the main differences between teaching in FE and teaching hating in FE? I think the biggest thing is really about trying to get the learner on board with what the expectation is from them and supporting them in the progression that they make from the different levels. In terms of the delivery, I would say that staff need to work much more on a um, slipped learning approach with our with HA learners. Again, in, in my experience, we operate on a model similar to what you would find in university where you have lectures and seminars but the real focus is on that seminar approach where you want the students to be really active in their learning that they come with something um that they then have those the chance to discuss that and pull it apart with their peers i think um that skill has to be um very much a supportive mechanism at the beginning so initially they may not know what to read so you have to direct that a lot but over the program of study, you would expect them then to kind of move away and be able to kind of go and select things themselves. So I think it's that um, really getting the students to do more outside of the classroom is a is a big shift, I think, with the HA provision that, that I've always been involved in. How, how is all of that regulated? So how are you making sure that this is the expectation of HA is maintained and I suppose this is your bread and butter, Emma. Being, being a director in law, what are you having to do to differentiate the way these learners are prepared and provided that independence and encouraged to become autonomous? So first and foremost, it's speaking to the students. Um, so a part of my role is very much to speak to students and listen and take on board the feedback that we get and try to implement that equally in my background and kind of my ethos is very much to get on the ground so getting into the classrooms walking about seeing what's happening getting a feel for it um, and and really working with staff and students to get the best experience that they can possibly get so obviously student voice is, is a crucial thing, whatever sector we're in, but 
how how are you collecting that? So you're going in, you're talking to the students, and then what happens? Do you do you change policies? Do you do you review what you're doing? And how supportive is say change within an organisation where you think, well, this has been identified as an issue, so we're going to do this. Is it easy to do and easy to accommodate when you've got triad roles to juggle around? Yeah. So. In terms of kind of taking the question, that the, the first part really in terms of the student voice, we take student voice in various different ways. Um, informally through course level and feedback that students give on module um, feedback forms. Then obviously students attending team meetings and feeding back in that respect. We do it on um, a much more holistic level in terms of generic surveys um the nss obviously being used the national student survey for for our he learners and we also hold student forums where i um chair a a very open discussion with the he student representatives and bring in other people from around the college that will support in the changes that the students want so um, at, for example, asking maybe the head of catering to come in in case there's anything that the students want to raise around catering. And I think that helps with the change because I think if it all comes just to one person, i.e. me, it's difficult to make those changes. But I think when we've got heads of services sitting there and listening to what the students want, it, it can become um, a, a, a more targeted and joined up approach really in terms of making those changes. Change is always a difficult thing, but we have to listen to students and we have to move with what students want. So, for example, in the um, institution that I work in, um, one of the things that the students have really been um, asking for is a designated HA common room. So that's one of the things that I'm very much working on at the moment um, to make sure that they've got a space that they can go um, and to have some time into working. So we'll move on to the learning environment then, seeing as you've mentioned that's come out as a student space. You know, a university, it's it's got so many resources that the students can tap into. They've got, you know, they're built for that purpose. Um, how is that facilitated in institutions where the university provisions in the college? I mean, other learners a part of the college or are they part of the university of the college or are they at home you tell me Emma what do you what do you find yeah so again I think it's different in different institutions um you know there's there's some institutions local to where where I am that very much have a separate HA provision but in terms of my institution the F the HA learners are part of the college community um, if we have students on validated or franchise programs that are from local universities, then they absolutely are part of, you know, their environment as well in terms of they do have access to all of the university resources that a university student would use. But I think because they attend at our institution, they very much feel part of the college family and prefer to use the facilities that we have available here. They, again, in, in my experience, we try to give them kind of a designated space. Um, it, it doesn't always happen, you know, but we try to make um, 
corridors or areas of the college adult only if you like in terms of it's only 19 plus that potentially will use those spaces to give the HA learners a little bit more of an identity but one of the things at the moment um, is trying to develop HA common room to allow the HA learners to go into a space that isn't the learning resource centre it's their own common room where they can sit and work quite informally and help those kind of study groups develop a little bit more yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have survived through uni if I didn't have a study group, if I wanted Absolutely. to be like, <laughs> Absolutely. I would be relying on someone else making the notes for me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, fostering that sense of community as well is really important because you don't normally go there to get your degree. You go to make friends and relationships and shared experiences. So Absolutely. So you can see why that common will be important. So best of luck to you getting that. Thank you. Keep us updated. I will do. <laughs> Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. So I want to talk about the kind of um, curriculum at HE and how does it compete with the um, the college delivery of it against the university. So yeah, I think you mentioned you know ten hours contact time. Was that was that for the full program per week? That's a full time program. Yep. So around that, I suppose it's self directed study. Absolutely doing the reading. Okay. So at university, you know. There might be a lecture where you have 300 students, you all go in together and then you have seminars with, you know, 20 to 30 people in where you discuss the text or whatever in a, in a um, kind of tutor-led and student-led way. And they have loads of assignments. I just remember these assignments. I remember looking <laughs> at my academic calendar and thinking, when do I get a week off? Um is is it very sem similar in terms of how you deliver your curriculum? Is it a big lecture with everyone kind of coming in and then you break off and then, you know, lots of assignment-based work? Again, I think it's a bit of a mix in, in my experience, uh, thinking about the provision that we have here. So in some of the more academic subjects, it absolutely is that, um, again, we don't have the numbers that universities generally um, have. So it's it is a lecture style but it's a much smaller cohort of students so it's probably not that kind of chalk and talk idea it's still that interaction and there'll be a two-way dialogue but the, the the tutor will probably take the responsibility of the lecture and then you move into the seminar to really open things up and and allow that kind of discussion to develop but i think one of the things that we have in in the college that i work in is very much um a practical side of delivery as well so some of that will be 
classroom versus workshop. So there's there's lots of workshop activity going on as well, um, where our HA learners are in very much practical, hands-on doing, as opposed to kind of sitting and talking about things all the time. And I'm just curious, because you have a slightly older demographic in, say, traditional universities, how much of their life experiences and, and you know, experiences such as family and employment um, come in to supporting their study? I mean, and we talked about it being a pressure, but does that actually help them? Definitely. Um, again, I can give you an example. I remember a, a few years ago when I was delivering and teaching on a programme um, and the student had um, the student was a single parent with three children and was just struggling. Everything was getting on top of them. And um, for some, I think they would easily give in. But for this student, they actually said no, because I want to set an example to my children that I can do it and I can keep going. So I think there is a pressure from that. But equally, I think it's a motivation sometimes for um, the the older learners in terms of you know, letting families down or letting somebody down, which again adds pressure, but I think equally can really drive and motivate. Um, and for some of, you know, a lot of my experience, the students that I've dealt with on our HA programs, they are sometimes the first in their family to try HA provision. Um, you know, pockets of the Northeast are very deprived and therefore many leave with the, the basic qualifications. So I think for some HA learners, it, it is very much the first in their family to ever try and get that HA and it's a real motivation. And I think, again, going back to that graduation ceremony and you can hear the whoops and the cheap cheers from the family, um, it's it's really lovely. It, it is actually um, something magical, isn't it? When you think about you, you've taken, say, three or four generations of um of students that have never gone into university, never thought they could. You know, you yeah. get some of those learners that they start at level two, level three, and they say, oh, I'm not going to go to uni, I can't. And then they do it. Um, and and it's changing the future generations of it is. those that will follow. But in terms of the kind of outcomes that they leave with, where are they going after they leave HE and FE? You know, is it the same as traditional universities or what do you, what do you find? Are they... Are their qualifications equally comparable? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a lot of links with employers or many of our HA students go straight into employment um, following their time with us. Again, some of our students do um, go on to university and do their top up, their third year to get um, their full degree qualification, full level six qualification. Um, and then go on to meaningful employment from there. Again, I think coming from kind of the FE side of it, the the educational gains, I think, are, are really important for, the, for our students as well in terms of, you know, the, it's not just about their qualification as such, it's the personal development, it's the confidence. It's also trying to develop their work readiness and you know getting them ready for the world of work and I think that all comes hand in hand with what we do in in the kind of FA provision. Yeah I was um, I'm interested to hear how you know a lot of your students go straight into employment it is actually reported that HMFB has stronger links with local employment because they're in the local area it's easy to get positions straight from them 
So, I mean, that's that's something that really is a massive bonus, especially in the economy out there right now. So it's good to see that. And I just wondered, you know, what about the grades? I mean, a university, obviously, the ideal is to get a first class. I mean, do you find a lot of your students, because they're coming in, you know, like you said, the lower um, educational background or starting points, do you find that it's harder to get them to that first class? Um, it can be, it, it, but again, it's what we do with them. So I think it's really about having that strong induction program that really sets the scene of what we need them to do moving from level three to level four and then from level four to level five and then potentially level five to level six. So I think that's really crucial. Um, I think because we are dealing with smaller groups, that, that tailored approach and that tailored support can be a lot more personalized to the student and to the individual, which means that we can maybe offer them um, support in ways that, again, if you're a university and you're one of 300, you can get lost mm -hmm. in the crowd sometimes. Um, so I, I would say that our outcomes are comparable. Um, we get them ready for work. We get them the qualification that they so wish to have. And we absolutely develop them personally as well. Oh, I love I love that kind of idea that you know you. I mean, what about the certificate, right? You get a you get a certificate, you get your degree on that big bit of paper. It's got a lovely little hologram on it or something. And even when you're at university, there's competition out there. You know, are you going to a red brick? Are you going to a Russell Group? And that that stamp of where you got your degree from holds a different sense of unknown pride amongst some. Like, have colleges got that to in them to compete against other colleges, first of all, and then to compete against these other universities, which are generating, you know, millions of pounds of business and marketing and all of that other stuff purely for that purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that competition is is evident more than ever in kind of the current climate. Ultimately, you're a business with a reputation and you want that reputation to be really strong. So, you know, absolutely. I think, you know, if I'm very honest, I think that the HA institutions are always seen in a more positive light, I think, than the FA colleges. But I think that's where we need to kind of shift. And I think that's why we need a bit more limelight on what happens in FA colleges when it comes to HA because I think we do it equally if not better sometimes and, and and that's not always shouted about and I think sometimes it's the name attached um to the university it doesn't necessarily mean that the students had an amazing experience it's just that they went to a certain university and I think that's where I think we have to change. What is the student experience generally telling you? Are students feeling satisfied? Are they happy that they did the degree there? Or do you find you get a, um, a higher dropout rate because of no. the, the coming in older and they've got other things going on? No, we we don't. We we absolutely find that they have a positive experience and they stay with us. Um, again, I think because they've, you know, the large proportion of them have been with us already. Um, it, it very much is that they feel comfortable and confident in what we do. Yes, some students do leave, but that's part and parcel of any program of study that's education ultimately. But we do whatever we can to ensure that they do stay with us and they are successful. But no, I would I would absolutely say that, you know, they we do keep our learners, we do get very positive outcomes when it comes to 
the student surveys that we do and they, they do feel happy and comfortable coming to us. So you've measured by student surveys, everyone yeah. is a student voice. What other kind of quality measures are in place for HUNFE? So just like any HA institution, the college is governed um, ultimately by the Office for Students and um, they look at what we do. We have certain indicators that govern what we you know, have to um, maintain and we take part in a, um, a kind of a quality check um, every so many years which looks at our provision and kind of grades us on our provision. Um, and that happens right across, obviously, anyone who comes under the Office for Students. So it works differently to FA, but equally we are we are measured. We're measured around, um, you know, various indicators. So there is data-driven. So there's data-driven indicators around um, how many learners uh, continue to HA, how many learners complete, how many learners progress. Um, we are also looked at in terms of teacher learning and assessment. Um, the biggest one is around educational gains and the impact that the, the HA programme can have um, on the individual. Um, we also, the student voices we've already mentioned is a massive indicator, the learning environment, learning resources. Um, there's, there's quite a few to kind of get your teeth into and, and have a look at and finally employer engagement as well. Well, colleges are, are always seeing struggle with employee engagement, but what happens if you don't? What happens if, um, you know, what are the, compared to say Ofsted, right? We don't do well, we get a judgment, a really poor judgment, we're monitored, we're, you know, heavily inspected until we get up to that standard. So is the Office for Students able to do that? Are they able to kind of come in and say, do you know what, you are inadequate or you require improvements so within a recommend these actions and come back in 18 months? Yeah, so What's they operate the they operate on a risk basis. So if we're not hitting certain indicators, then the risk will increase and they will look to obviously give us certain actions to to meet. Um, the, the kind of teaching excellence framework, the TEF, um, analyze what we do, what we have and give us a report and from that make judgments. Um, they operate on like a, a bronze, silver, gold um, status. And then again, depending upon what you get, it, it gives you something to work on and you can produce your own action plan. Um, they're a little bit more, I would say, hands-off than maybe Ofsted are. Um, okay. But that doesn't mean that they're not there. And it, as I say, there is a risk process in place. So when information is fed up to the Office for Students, if we're not meeting the, the certain indicator and we're not compliant with certain bits and pieces, uh, they absolutely can come and have a look in much more detail at what we're doing. Brilliant. So, I mean, you mentioned the tests there, right? And 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 every HE provider, um, you know, aspires to be that gold. Um, when we're looking at the college, we're looking at the colleges that, um, that provide HE courses. We've got thirteen percent of the institutions get gold status with TEF, the Teaching Excellence Framework. We've got 42% of them getting silver and 28% of them getting bronze. Now, if you wouldn't mind very quickly kind of just summarising, what are the expectations for HE to get gold? What do our HE in FE lecturers need to be doing? So 
the the one of the biggest things I think that from my experience um holds many FA colleges back from getting gold is around um staff CPD and scholarly activity, which is something that I'm very scholarly activity. Yeah. If you just say any lectures and scholarly activity, where is that gonna happen? I think the <laughs> I think the lack of understanding about what it is, first and foremost. Um and I think it needs to be driven and I think there needs to be a little bit help given to um staff to understand exactly what what it is and what it entails. And I think sometimes um they do a lot of scholarly activity and don't actually realise that they're doing it. So then when they're asked to reflect upon it, they're not very confident in doing that. So again, I think it's a culture change. But it's doable, do you think? It's yes, doable. It's it easily is. implemented. Because I remember when I was doing EFI and I was this triad lecturer, scholarly activity was just that we am going to fit this in, in, yep. in between midnight and 4am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And and trust me, I'm one of those that love it. You know, I, I've studied and I'm still researching now. But I I think that is always going to be very challenging with the yeah. with the time, the pressures, and your teaching, your adapting, all of that. Is there sh- is there not some lesser expectation if you're a, a triad role lecturer? Unfortunately, not for the TEF. So I think it's up to the FA colleges to think about other ways of embedding it. So. One of the things that I'm looking to do is trying to um, embed the idea of scholarly activity into some of the meetings that are, you know, put on that we do have dialogue and discussion around what it is and and what's been happening and what's been done in the different areas so that we are doing it in a more maybe regulated fashion and to just try and grow it a little bit. So it. Overall, you think it's doable. You've been saying, you know, colleges, they're they're doing well, they're doing the hatching, they're doing it justice. They're competing against these universities, all right, aren't they? Is that what what you're saying? Absolutely. We can do it. We can do it. (laughs) I do think that there is a lot of constraints, you know, like we've mentioned in terms of time and meeting kind of annual teaching requirements and and things and you're absolutely right it you know with marking and and all the things that come alongside being a fa lecturer um it, it is very challenging so i think it's it's try it's up to people in roles that similar to mine to try and make it as easy and as simple as possible to kind of allow staff to see what these things are and how they can maybe do them without taking too much of their time and I hope you do it well enough for all of us out there that are doing uh, HE and FE. Me <laughs> too. You. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever, it's been great to talk to you about the seriousness of HE and FE and how it's continuing to grow. There's still a few little hiccups and bumps along the road as there are with anything. But it sounds like it's on the right path and giving opportunities to people that wouldn't necessarily go into HE without it. So, I mean, you've been fantastic today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, next week, well, no, sorry, not next week. In two weeks' time on the 3rd of October, we've got Nicola McCluskey coming in and she's going to talk to us about the battles of CPD. Now, when I'm talking about the battles, I mean... You know, she's a curriculum lead. All she needs to do is mandate and mandatory rollout of CPD. 
I mean, there are people that are for and against it, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you've had to do CPD, if you've been forced to do CPD, how did you find it? What was the impact? And what about optional CPD? So if you found it yourselves, you know, should our institutions and organizations be funding it? What are your thoughts? Love to hear about it. So that's on the 3rd of October, 11 a.m. on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and see you again soon. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio. What do you mean?